Welcome to the Hybrid Real Estate Professional Podcast, where we dive deep into the intersection of career, family, and finances. Learn the mindsets, tips, and strategies to help you on your personal journey to build a life of abundance and purpose for you and your family. Now here's your host, Aaron Amin. Welcome back to another episode of the Hybrid Real Estate Professional Podcast. Today I am joined by Cam Cooper. Cam is only 29 years old, but has already had a storied real estate investing journey. He is a true hybrid real estate professional. He works by day as a data analyst for AT&T, where he has a storied career already. Uh, He also has house hacked. He has helped run investment meetups in Atlanta, where he lives. He's just got his license to be a loan originator. He has worked with several other prominent real estate investors, and his journey is nothing short of fascinating. I'm really excited to have you hear this interview. Let's get into it. All right, welcome back to the Hybrid Real Estate Professional Podcast. Today, I am joined by Cam Cooper. Cam is a friend of mine. We are in Action Academy Mastermind together. We got to talking a few weeks ago. It was actually the first conversation we ever had. And we had so much in common that I figured I had to get him on the show right away. So Cam, I would love for you to just kind of introduce yourself in your own words and tell us a little bit of what you're all about. Yeah. So my name is Cam. I live in the Atlanta area. I've lived here for about six years. I kind of first dipped my toes into real estate investing back in 2021. I'm a three-time house hacker. So that's when I first got started in 2021 with the kind of rent by the room strategy in Atlanta. Since then, I've done a couple of house hacks. I've gotten really involved into the Atlanta real estate investing meetup here. It's a large, one of the largest, bigger pockets, free meetups in the Southeast. I think it's the biggest in Atlanta. And I've gotten close with a lot of investors in that space through, I work, I still work full-time as a data analyst, but on the side, I, I've pursued a couple of other opportunities in real estate. I've made a couple of courses. Uh, I did a small group coaching program through the meetup, helping folks get into their first uh, house act or first um, investment property. Kind of went through the entire process. It was a 12-month course. Uh, And then I also, earlier this year, I worked closely with Ziana McIntyre on creating a medium-term rental crash course for folks who are trying to get into the medium-term rental space whether they were already short-term rental operators and trying to hybridize their their business or if they wanted to just learn more about the, the kind of the growing the growing industry and in, in real estate investing in there. So that was cool. That was like an eight-week course. It was cool to work with Ziana, who had just re- wrote her book on medium-term renting. I had some experience with the, uh, the, the course that I had made for the meetup, and she needed somebody to kind of manage that while also promote her book. So that was really cool. And then just recently... I just got my MLO licensure to become a, a mortgage loan originator in Georgia. So kind of the goal there is to work closely with some other realtors in the Atlanta area to help folks, especially in this time when it's particularly difficult to get financing and, and purchase a home when affordability is pretty low, help folks get into their first house act uh, or next investment property in the Atlanta area. So. I kind of did slowly waded deeper into the real estate investing water through a couple of different avenues, but I love it so far. It's become a big passion of mine since COVID. So yeah, I'm excited. It's been cool to kind of mend those two, the W2 and my real estate investing journey too. Cam epitomizes what I like to call a hybrid real estate professional, right? He's He's got 
what, five or six different hats that you named there. There's quite a few terms that I want to just make sure we unpack there. So we talked about house hacking. You talked about midterm rentals. Uh, you talked about some of the group courses you ran, talked about mortgage loan origination. So maybe we kind of take those in order. And I think most of my listeners probably know what house hacking is, but why don't you give them a little explanation of what that is and how you found it to be so powerful that you wanted to repeat it over and over again? Yeah. So I guess, as you guys probably know, house hacking is when you're renting out a component of your primary residence where you live to generate a little bit of income, maybe offset or completely eliminate your mortgage payment through renting of other parts of the home. When I, in 2020, a handful of my friends in Atlanta, before I even got into the meetup or the real estate in general, they were buying homes right around the same time. And I was like, don't really want to miss out on this low interest rate opportunity. I never really listened to any bigger pockets or read any of those books. So they all bought at the end of 2020, and I kind of jumped in on the party in, a, or in April of 2021. I knew that once they had purchased their homes, I started to listen a little bit more into bigger pockets. They had kind of turned me on to it. And that's when I found Craig Curlop, read his book cover to cover twice. And I was like, this is exactly how I want to get started. And so that's what I did. I bought a four bed, three bath in Atlanta that they had converted the carport into kind of like its own little studio. So I lived there and I rented out the other three bedrooms. And then that was nice. I, I got, I found all of my tenants through local Facebook groups. I got really lucky because they were all cool young guys, kind of in a similar stage of life as me. So it went really well. And I was like, okay, this really isn't too bad. So I ended up buying an investment property with a partner in, in December of 2021, kind of went through a bit of a gnarly eviction process, cut my teeth really early in my, in my real estate journey. Shortly thereafter, renting it out, I bought it in December. I had unfortunately started the eviction process in, in March. And after kind of going through that process, the house hacking strategy had worked and we had, I had come to an agreement with my partner that I would move into the house, kind of rent by the room, get, give them the proceeds, kind of work out a deal where we, they would still maintain equity and we wouldn't make it as much money on it through the house act, but temporarily kind of re-stabilize the property. I lived there for a couple of months. Uh, now that's fully rented out by the room. And then back in June of this year, I purchased my third house act, which I bought it with the intention of uh, using it as a medium term rental. So there's kind of, it's a single family home, three, two upstairs, one, one downstairs, fully renovated. I think the person who had owned it before had owned a couple of rental properties. So it, it was definitely like Airbnb ready to go. So I knew that I wanted to medium term rented after getting really close with Z and some other folks in the medium term rental space. And it was perfect because I had my area upstairs. There's a full kitchen downstairs. So that's kind of the path that I took. I furnished it. And then I got my first tenant, my first travel nurse tenant who works at a local hospital network here in Atlanta over Labor Day weekend. So they'll be here through, through Thanksgiving time. But it's been really cool to eventually, I guess I should say, I want to eventually hybridize this house that in the fall and winter season, I'll medium term rent it. And then spring and summer, I'll try to short term rent it to see if I could change some of the revenue numbers, bring it in in the high season. Eventually, the long-term play with this house, I've gotten close with somebody named Ruben Kanya, who's a medium-term rental guy here in Atlanta. He works closely on the insurance contract side. So I want to eventually furnish the whole house, move out, and then rent the entire home out as a medium-term insurance contract play. Awesome. So for the uninitiated, a medium-term rental is typically between a 30-day or a little longer than 30 days. So greater than one month lease term, and mm -hmm. usually up to about six months. 
So the the three kind of standard segments of a of a rental are long term, which are like the twelve month plus leases, the midterm, like I just talked about, and then short term, which would be Airbnb. And so it sounds like kind of your plan you've navigated at different times across all three of those. And even your plan in the current house that you're sitting in, you might utilize a little bit of all of them. Is that right? That's right. That's right. So the other two homes are currently rent by the room, long-term rentals. Each room is on an individual lease. And then this one is, is medium term. Yeah. So it's a 13-week, 90-day stay based on the contract that the nurse has. Yeah. And then eventually, hopefully turning at least part of the house into a short-term rental while I'm still here. And that's really smart, the idea of partnering with insurance companies who need to place people, presumably maybe they're displaced from some something that happened to them at, at their other homes. Uh, is, mm-hmm. is that right? Or is there a different part of that strategy too? That's Yeah, that's, that's pretty much it. So you partner, these insurance providers work with housing specialists who it's their main job to work with displaced families to basically find them essentially a like for like. So if they were a a larger family, maybe four or five folks in the in the home, and they live in a four-bedroom house. The insurance provider wants to provide them with another four-bedroom house so they don't have much of a change in their lifestyle. So that's kind of why I bought in the area that I did. I'm close to a handful of hospitals, large hospital networks, and then it's also, um, there's some relatively good schools in the area that I'm into, so it's the long-term goal. And so for all three properties, did you buy with owner-occupied financing? With two of them, I did. With the first house hack and then with this one, I did. With the second one, I bought it with the intention of it being a, a rental property. So we put 20% down. We structured the partnership with my partner. They kind of brought a large percentage of the down payment. And then I kind of managed it through the ups and the downs of some of the... I managed the day-to-day. They don't live in the Atlanta area. And yeah, so then these other two, I used 5% down conventional. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. Yeah, For those who have the flexibility. I didn't really learn about this whole trick of just stringing together a bunch of house hacks until I was starting to settle down with my wife and having an eye towards kids. So I did a different type of house hack in my scenario where we bought a house to live in and then we eventually moved out of it, but kept it as a rental. Mm -hmm. I still call it a house hack, but it's a little different than buying. Yeah, I guess technically that would be more of a live than rent. Mm -hmm. You can call it what you want, right? But the idea is that you buy a house with owner-occupied financing, which has better interest rates and lower percentage down payment. And then that lower monthly payment allows you to make better cash flow and also just keep more of your money in your pocket. So it's it's incredibly smart. So how did the first eviction, if you're not too scarred from the story, can you tell us a little bit about that, how that played out? Yeah, I love, it was a difficult time going through it at first, but I love talking about it because I feel like it's not something that a lot of real estate investors, at least who are trying to get started, really talk about, or they're not really familiar with a lot of the process. One, because it really varies depending on what municipality you're in, whether it's the county or the city that handles it. But I guess I can just quickly give you the highlights or maybe the lowlights of what happened. Closing the property in December of 2021 with I got under contract around Thanksgiving time, which is kind of a hack if you guys are trying to purchase a home in the wintertime. A lot of times there's not a lot of buying and selling activity going on specifically during the week of Thanksgiving. So we got in, so we were the first people to see the house. We thought it was great, put in an offer. And it was even back in 2021, where it was pretty competitive market, we were able to, we were able to, it was a competitive advantage to put in an offer at that time. Anyways, we closed it in like the middle of December. 
And around that time I was living here, I was going to go visit my family for Christmas. And I made the mistake of maybe rushing my screening process with the person who I was trying to rent it to. And I kind of probably overlooked a couple of red flags. Like she was self-employed. I didn't realize at the time that people sometimes who can be professional tenants might have some falsified documentation. I didn't, I misread this and I was like, oh, this is great. She wants to move in and within a week I can go back home, have the whole house rented out before, before I leave. And I thought it was great at first. And then red flags started to pop up, paid on time in January, you know, paid a little bit late in February. I got a partial payment in March and then I never got rent after that. So that's, and then unfortunately I, I wasn't familiar with the eviction process in the county that I live in. And I wanted to give her the benefit of the doubt as well, because it was my first time. Of course, everyone has a little bit of a story to tell as to why they can't pay their rent. And so I never, I didn't actually end up filing the eviction until May because of just, I, I think she was kind of tugging on the heartstrings a little bit. I wish that I would have done it immediately and just kind of moved that process along because I just didn't know this person. And what ended up happening was I had found out later that she wasn't the person that she says that she was. I had, there was a different name, different W-2, different social security number. I looked up her actual name when I found out I had gotten in touch with her, a previous landlord. She had given me, when you go through the application process, you want to get references from previous landlords. That person was not who they said that they were either. So I actually got in contact with her actual previous landlord. He said that she did the same thing. And then I had looked up, looked her up on the county court of records and I'd found out that she had been evicted a handful of times since since 2017, which is, I, if I had known, then I obviously would not have, would not have gone through with that with that tenant. But unfortunately, it was also in in the beginning of 2022 when there was still there wasn't an eviction moratorium in the city of Atlanta, but there was a lot of backed up eviction cases. So we we filed the eviction in March or sorry in May, and we didn't actually go to court until July, and then we didn't actually get her out of the house till October. So that was a lot of missed rent, a lot of lost income potential there. So that was part of the reason why we kind of came to that conclusion with my partner that maybe it'd be best if I moved in, restabilized it, fixed up some of the issues with the house. And that ended up working out for the best anyways. Wow. And how did you figure out that it wasn't her real name? That is wild. Well, she had given me, she's like, this is my name, but I go by this. And I looked her up on Facebook and she had, she had an account with that name, but then I looked up other people. I didn't realize this, but like other people were living in the house too. Like her mother was living in the house. She had kids who were living in the house who were over the age of 18. And I had just kind of pieced it together. I found out that her mom had been evicted a couple of times. And then I just kind of searched her last name in the, the court, the city kind of records. And I found out that she, I found out her real name. I found her doing some kind of like, you can use websites to kind of find people's information. And I found that out. I looked that up. And that's kind of when I, I realized that I had been had. <laughs> and thankfully, I was able to find out her previous landlord, too, through property records and stuff like that. And he was he, he gave me a lot of information about the process and kind of how he went through it. And yeah, so yeah, it was a little bit of digging and researching, but it ended up the time that I find it in. You know, you, you hope stuff like that never happens, but at the same time, if you're planning to be in real estate for a long period of time, things like that are inevitably going to happen. You, I'm sure learned a lot from it about how you screen people. And obviously you learned about the eviction process, lessons you would hope you don't have to learn, but nonetheless, you're probably better off for it now having gone through that and 
you make a couple of tweaks to your process and it sounds like you even turned it into an opportunity where you ended up moving and like you said, stabilizing it. So when you moved in, did you end up refinancing it as an owner occupied? And so I didn't actually, what I ended up doing was, cause at the time, by, by the time that I had moved in in October, rates had, had gone, gone up pretty substantially. I think by the time that I was, would have refinanced the rates for November of 2022, they're right around 7%. And I, and I had locked this one up at like four and a quarter. So it didn't really make a ton of sense at the time to refinance. But at the same time, I was, I was a little bit gun shy. I was like, I don't really want to, especially right now, refinance doesn't really make sense. I, I don't really want to rent this out to a single family right now. And there was, a, I bought it with, with the ability to flex it into a house stack if I wanted to, or at least rent by the room. It was a four bed, two bath house with kind of two separate living areas. So that's what I ended up doing. I was like, in in this in the case where maybe one tenant who rents a bedroom doesn't pay their rent, I could still be not be totally out of all the revenue for that month. So that's what I ended up doing, and that, that ended up being more lucrative of an option too in the long run too, because you can you can kind of command a little bit more rent that way. So do you have fun putting on your problem solver hat, like navigating these situations? Like obviously you're very creative. You've been able to each house you've had you've used in a different way, you financed in a different way, you partnered, you navigated this choppy water with this tenant. Did you have fun with it, even even in the rough times a little bit? I would say that initially I didn't because there were some other things that happened at the house. Unfortunately, the house was a flip. So there were a couple cosmetically really nice inside, but there were some system issues that were maybe ignored by the previous owner, right? So within... There were some things actually that I knew from the inspection that would have to get replaced eventually. Like I knew the HVAC system was old, probably past its lifetime, and that would have to be replaced within the first two years. But some things like I just wasn't prepared for just that you learned through the process. Like I didn't do a sewer line inspection and that failed within two months of me owning the property. So that, so some of the things that came up, like the, the water line failed, of course, on Christmas Eve, right? Like the least, these things happen when, when you least are prepared for them. I had to replace the AC. So there were a couple of major capital expenditures that I kind of had to be flexible and figure out. And at the time, I was just not prepared on how to kind of handle those emotionally, I would say. Financially, was able, I was able to figure them out, like zero percent interest credit cards and like financing with low interest debt, things like that. And those have been fine. But at the time, I think it, it forced me to kind of like rem remove the emotion from the situation, treat it like a business uh, and not get so caught up and the interpersonal issues that kind of come up with those things. So it definitely forced me to be creative and, and treat it more like a business and not get so emotionally tied up with the folks who are living there. So that was that was definitely the biggest thing. And now I feel a lot more equipped to handle it that way. And now when things pop up, which they inevitably will at some of the other properties, it's not, it, it's it's more fun to be like, hey, how, how can I quickly resolve this and get this restabilized? So what you're saying is your portfolio is entirely passive. Absolutely much. I wish I could say so. I, I feel like I entered the real estate space house hacking thinking that it would be the most passive way to kind of jump into the space. And when you're house hacking, it is a little bit more passive than strictly an, an investment property that you have to kind of drive by and check up on regularly. This situation, it was an investment property. I didn't live there. I had to kind of drive over there every once in a while. Thankfully, it was close, but that was definitely the most that time when there was a single family living in there was by far the most active out of any of my purchases so far. 
but it's like I said, definitely still, even when I'm, when I am house hacking and I'm living in the house and there's issues that are happening here, still not, still not totally passive. I don't think there's any real estate investing short of maybe, you know, putting some money in it as a limited partner in a syndication, but any direct ownership, even if you're a partner, equity partner on some, another project, there's some level of mental overhead or involvement that's going to be fun. But with that, obviously, comes additional upside and amazing benefits. Otherwise, none of us would do it. So, that's right. So I know you, a couple of things I want to dig into. So you've you've been extremely active in the local community there with real estate meetups, um, which presumably is how you opened up some of those partnerships with people like Ziona. And by the way, I don't think we did a formal plug for Ziona. Ziona McIntyre wrote a book called 30 Day Stay, which is all about midterm rentals. There's your free plug, Ziona. You're welcome. <laughs> it's actually, it's a great book and it talks all about how to execute that midterm rental strategy, which is very popular. Anyway, <laughs> the real estate meetups and how did you kind of, it's not only that you attended them, but you actually made yourself kind of a central figure within the meetups, it turned into coaching and turned into partnerships. Talk, talk us through that journey a bit. Yeah. So shortly after I bought the first house hack, I was just scrolling through Facebook one day. I saw an ad for the meetup, which happens at, it kind of hops around the city now, but it happened at a local uh, bar that was, that everyone was familiar with, very social place. And I got to know the real estate agent there who, who ran the meetup. His name is Vince Crane. I'll give him a plug too. And just, we had just over time, just kind of become, we were kind of in a similar state of life too. We just talk and he would, he would call me once a quarter as part of his lead generation process. And he, I was just at the time, I still am very much this way, but at the time I had just gotten started, I was like, I'm very gung ho. I'm like, I want a house hack. I want to buy a house every year for the next five years. And I think he kind of attached that energy and he's like, wow, you're like a lot of people. I mean, the retention rate at the, at the meetup, I would say is probably about 50%. So every meetup, only half the folks who came to the last meetup are still there. Uh, and I was very much a regular attendee. I talked to the main guy, Vince, pretty frequently. Um, I think he just liked that energy. That wasn't very common. A lot of the folks who are at the meetup are maybe older seasoned investors who have a large portfolio and they come by every once in a while to maybe connect with other older investors. I was a young guy kind of ready to to jump in. So that, that really helped. That energy really helps. And that gave me an opportunity to partner with him. He says, I kind of want to find another way to had this meetup generate some income. So that's when we started the, the coaching program because there is there is a large component of the meetup that is older investors who have large portfolios who have kind of been there, done that. Um, but there's also a lot of folks at the time in 2021 who were like, man, this real estate investment uh, avenue, it could be pretty lucrative. So there's a lot of folks who were trying to get started as well. So we wanted to take advantage of that audience and help folks get started. And uh, so that's kind of how we came up with the idea of this Similar to the Action Academy mastermind, but maybe for folks who are who are a little more brand new and talked about mindset, talked about the process for buying a home, talked about different investment strategies if you're not able to house hack, things like that. Very cool. So what what was the program? So you, you met people at the meetup and then they expressed interest to you that, hey, we want something a little deeper, more involved. And then you built out a program to help them get from wherever they were to their next rental. Is that what it was? That's pretty much it. Vince and I had got together and a handful of times to kind of create the cur the curriculum. Basically, it was a weekly meetup, or a weekly uh, virtual and in person session, 
And we had kind of gotten together and said, hey, like, I think this could be a really good opportunity. Courses at the time and still are to this to this day were pretty popular in the real estate space. And there wasn't really a mastermind intimate group outside of the monthly meetups where folks who really wanted to get started but didn't really know how to meet up. So that was kind of the the beginning, I guess, the jumping off point of why the why we decided to do the small group coaching program. And that worked really well. That did. There was a lot of, there's, it's so rewarding. I'm sure you, you probably feel this too. There was like three or four folks who went from essentially having no knowledge about real estate at all to learning about it, getting into their first rental property or their first house hack over the course of a year, which I, that was one of the most rewarding things for me to see because that's really, that's what kind of inspires me. That's why I got my MLO license. I was like, I want to make this, I want to see people pursue the path that I'm pursuing and try to help them as much as possible. So that that was a, a really great opportunity to, to do that. It's a uniquely powerful, and I don't mean powerful in a lustful way, I mean powerful in a meaningful way when you get to help people go through that transformation. Because I think a lot of people are really interested in real estate, but they're a little intimidated by stories like the one you told, like, oh, what if I get my first house and then the first tenant is a squatter and they trash the place and I get right. stuck and I get caught in an eight month long eviction. People I can kind of jump to the worst scenarios in their mind. And I think it's helpful to have coaching or people who have gone through a few cycles of both good situations and bad situations to try and educate that, hey, like for every problem that occurs, you're not the first one that's gone through it. And there are ways to navigate it and there's ways to mitigate that risk. And so, yeah, having those programs as on-ramps for people that are looking to get into it that don't have that experience is it's really important and from your local meetup to people who just want to get in, period. I would say sometimes I, in a way, when I got started, I wasn't nearly as educated as some of the folks who are in the meetup now when there's access to podcasts and things like that. I had just seen my friends do something similar. So I was like, I kind of want to do this. I think had I known more, I might've been a little bit, a little more gun shy, at least getting into the first one, but it was, it was a relatively low risk way to get started. And I think knowing what I know now, I feel super prepared for whatever, anything that pops up in my way, but it's kind of that balance of like, I want to educate folks. I want to tell folks the risks, but also like, it's really not as bad as you think. Like once you get started, you, you kind of activates the problem solving component in your brain and you'll figure it out and just, you know, uh, telling those those nightmare stories and the horror stories are, are, are they're not intended to scare you. They're intended to be like, here's the risk, but here's how I figured it out. And here's how it's not really as scary as you think it is. You know, I have a, a friend named Dan who's actually coming on the podcast very soon here. And he ran a podcast that was originally called the Resilient REI Podcast. I don't know if you've heard it. I think it I have. spun off. It spun off and now he changed it and it is called Landlord Horror Stories. And the entire purpose of the podcast is he finds people who have gone through some pretty gnarly stuff with their properties and they give the whole 20-minute deep dive rundown about, you know, it really follows the arc of a whole story, right? Like you're 10 minutes in and you're like, oh my God, when is this going to stop? <laughs> and I asked him, I was like, what on earth are you thinking where you're going to scare away all the investors? And he said, no, 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 every single episode ends with encouragement. It shows how these investors got out of these pickles how they got through not only that situation, but have gone on to do many more great deals, right? And even sometimes in those stories, the deals that they were going through the nightmare with turned out just fine. And said when you said that, I, that it reminded me of 
you know, how, yeah, like for every horror story, there's usually a flip side and there's a lot more good than bad, generally speaking, especially if you go over a long enough time horizon. So tell us about the the MLO, like what made you do that and how exactly does that help other people? Yeah. So MLO is a mortgage loan originator. So they're basically the person who who creates on behalf of a lender, creates relationships with potential buyers, walks them through the home buying process, lets them know, kind of negotiates on behalf of the lender rates and terms of the mortgage that somebody would be looking to take out. And they're, they're kind of the the face that you work with as a buyer if you're trying to pursue a mortgage. Part of the reason, I'll admit, part of the reason why I wanted to get my MLO is I do have, I do have very much of an interest in eventually having a more active income related to the real estate space. Also, I'm carrying three mortgages in my personal name. So I have a pretty high debt to income ratio, right? I have these three mortgages I have to pay every month and I needed to increase my income in some way outside of the rent that I get and outside of my W-2 income to allow me to buy more homes down the line, right? So part of it was that, part of it was like, I need to, if I want to make the next step, I need to generate a little bit more income, um, kind of want to parlay that with growing my network in the Atlanta area. I really, really do want to help folks, uh, especially now, try to find affordable ways to to purchase a home, but also working closely with with Vince Still, who runs the meetup. We have about 3,000 people in the Facebook group, and that really translates to about 100 or so folks who come out once a month, or every month, I should say. And that's that's a pretty big audience to who for folks who may not own a home, maybe looking to buy a home. So we kind of <clears throat> translated the existing small group coaching program to a first-time homebuyer seminar. So what I wanted to do with that was work closely with Vince on him, him kind of being the, the face of the home buying, the real estate brokerage side, and I can be the person who can answer questions about financing and lending through that seminar. So that that's kind of how I pivoted to that. Figured that would be a pretty interesting opportunity to work together on that and, and take advantage of the massive audience that the, that the meetup has and, and, and really providing folks more information on navigating in this particularly difficult time. Very cool. So would you, so you get licensed to originate loans and then would you have to work for a bank or a mortgage broker company? Like how does, how does it work? Yeah, that's exactly it. So I just, I took a 20 hour course in August. I just sat for the exam last week. I passed and now I'm in the process of working through the, the licensing system, the national licensing system on getting credit and background checks, things like that. And then the next step is getting what is in the lending states called getting sponsored by it's essentially getting employed by a lender or a broker. And depending on, there's different avenues you can pursue, whether you want to go with the lender side or the broker side, depending on how close you want to be to the actual financing itself. But that's that's the next step. So the reason, and I guess kind of going back to the home that I just purchased, part of the reason too that I wanted to become an MLO as well um, was when I bought this house, um, not only were rates high. I, I owner-occupied loan. It was 6.9% rate, which is pretty high for owner-occupied. Um, only 5% down. And and home prices are pretty expensive here too. Inflated, I would not inflated, but you know, higher than, than average recently. But my origination fee alone, just cash that I have that is going to closing that I couldn't really negotiate too much was like nine grand. So I thought that that was 
for some buyers who are already on the fringe of maybe not being able to afford just the financing itself, just a mortgage every month, that would be prohibitively expensive to have to come out of pocket with that amount of cash at closing, right? Just to have somebody, that's money that's just going to the lender who may not even service your loan. So I was like, okay, there has to be a better way. And maybe that was a testament to like, maybe I can work with another lender in the future, but I wanted to see like, okay, for some folks, this is already very close to impossible. And I want to make this not as impossible for people, right? So working with a broker who, who might be, who might have better, more favorable buyer terms. Gotcha. But in that scenario, would you then have to be sacrificing some of your cut or your margin in order to give those more preferred terms? I probably would. I probably would, which is okay for me. I still have a W-2 job, which is which is nice. I, I want to, for me, it's more important that you provide good customer service, right? You want to give them a good customer experience because that usually means that they'll probably come back to you in the future if they want to purchase another home. And that's kind of the the, the, the idea, right? If I, folks understand, like learn more about real estate investing, about house hacking, they had a good experience with me, maybe they'll become repeat customers, right? So you're right. I, I would lose a little bit on the front end, but hopefully providing folks, making the experience a little bit less scary, making it a little bit more affordable could kind of make up for that in the back end. Last question on this topic. Can you originate your own loans? I believe that you can. I have not done it yet but I've worked with folks who are lenders and MLOs themselves, and they have done that in the past. So I have not done it yet. I intend on doing that when I purchase my next primary residence, but I believe the answer is yes. So by the same logic that a lot of investors choose to get their real estate license to save on commissions, in theory, we need to confirm this, that you could originate your own loans and save some money That's on right. that side too. Conceptually, I love this idea of turning a cost center into a profit center, right? It's like, this is something that's going to cost you money on every transaction. Instead, you've turned it into an opportunity where you can help yourself out, but also potentially help other people out. Um, so it's a, a win-win, true win-win. 100%. I totally agree. And yeah, that's that's exactly why I wanted to get into it. I love it. Okay. So we made it about 35 minutes in and you, we only mentioned your W2 once, but I want to talk about that for a minute. So what is your current job? How did you get into it? And then what are some of the things that you've learned in your career path that helped you in your real estate investing journey? Yeah. So I work at at and I am a data, anal or, yeah, data analytics professional there. So I work closely with their wireless consumer marketing department. Whenever we have promotions, we run tests on how how successful those promotions are are running and how we can I work specifically on the retention side of of that side of the business so I work on main, making sure that folks who are currently AT&T customers or wireless customers don't leave right and if they do think about leaving like how can we make sure that we can provide them with a rich enough offer so that they can stay and usually what that means is I am spending a lot of time running analyses on like A-B testing, making sure that the thing that is out there in the market is actually working and seeing how that can reduce churn rates, like folks leaving at and to go to a place like Verizon or T-Mobile, right? So inevitably, that means that I spend a lot of time making Excel workbooks and spreadsheets, Tableau dashboards, things like that. That's kind of a technical interest of mine. And through the process of getting more involved in the meetup and running these small group coaching programs, I've loved creating my own underwriting tools, deal calculators, looking at deals that other people have and saying, hey, like, does this deal make sense? Does this kind of pencil out? 
So I definitely use a lot of those technical skills on the real estate side to not only increase my own confidence in the deal that I'm looking at, especially when rates are changing very frequently and rapidly, but also like helping other folks too. being like, hey, this is this is what I'm seeing in this market is the purchase price. This is kind of what I want to do with the property. Here's what I expect rents to be. Here's some of the ex expenses I expect and using some of those Excel tools that I've created to help other folks too. Awesome. Yeah. One of the themes in the show and just the stuff I write about in general is that I think a lot of people underestimate some of the skills that they have from either their current jobs or their previous roles or just different parts of their life that they might not be activating. And so I think, yeah, just you being so familiar with data and being an analyst by profession, obviously that maps over. There's no shortage of analysis to be done mm -hmm. in real estate investing. And uh, the more familiar you can get with underwriting and, and just numbers in general, the stronger it makes you. That coupled with the creativity that you've explained with how you've navigated house hacking, short-term, mid-term, all this stuff, uh, you've, you've woven together quite an impressive journey so far. And I imagine it is probably only beginning. And so with that, what are, what are you looking ahead to? What are some like longer horizon further out goals? Yeah. Yeah. So... Through the house hacking process, this has been a really great way to take stepping stones into real estate investing full-time. That is definitely an ambition of mine in the future. I think that through what I've experienced, and, and this might just be the nature of the market right now, I don't know if I'm going to get there to where I want to be when I want to be there just by buying a, a single family home every once a year for the next five years. I... I'll tread lightly because I know some folks who I work with watch or will eventually watch this, but I do have ambitions of eventually retiring early. I've kind of set a an age with, I had an agreement with my dad last summer that I kind of, I'm currently 29. I would like to be fully retired or I guess not retired. I shouldn't say that. Work optional by the time I'm 36 and I, kind of working backwards from there. I, I kind of, I have aspirations to kind of accelerate the growth of the income that some of these investments have. So in the future, I definitely would like to get a little bit more involved, like you said, um, in some of those passive uh, ventures, whether it's syndications or something like that, or being a capital partner for somebody else on another deal. But also, having worked so closely with the meetup and seeing the revenue that that can generate, I definitely have gotten an interest in the buying and selling of small businesses as well. Um, because unlike real estate in some capacities, the revenue cap that you have for running this, operating a small business is a lot higher. And some people would probably say it's, there is no cap. You could, you could drive costs down and increase revenue theoretically a lot higher than you can with just a, a single, single family home. So I, I definitely want to, I bought these homes with the intention of holding them for a long time and, and building equity in those. But I think in the future, I want to eventually turn that into ventures in commercial real estate, buying and selling, buying a small business, maybe putting an operator in there. I, I think ideally what I'd like to do is I, not only am I familiar with, with buyers and sellers and investors through the meetup, but I'm also familiar with a lot of contractors and real estate adjacent professionals that I've gotten familiar with through the meetup, right? So sometimes those are landscapers or general contractors or folks who own HVAC businesses or plumbers, right? And I don't know if any folks who watch your stuff are like follow Cody Sanchez, but she is the queen of buying 
the boring businesses, right? So getting familiar with those people and, and maybe using some of those relationships to eventually purchase a small business in that space is, is definitely something that I want to do in the near future. Yeah, single family houses are the gateway drug to bigger, crazier, more complex ventures. And yes, buying buying a small business is definitely a compelling proposition, although I know that that is very far from passive. Even if you find a great operator, you still got to, first you have to find them, which is a challenge in and of itself. You have to have some level of oversight and you still got to kind of sweat while you while you install it and, and watch the system run. But that's, no, that's exciting. And I, I've definitely thought about it. It's funny you mentioned that 36 was your work optional date. I had just turned 34 last week and I put out my vivid vision for everyone to see. And I had 37, my 37th birthday is my work optional date. So sounds like we're similarly aligned. And I actually really think that framing of work optional is is much better at least for me, than fire and retire early right. and all that. Because I just, I can't fathom the idea of retiring in my 30s. It doesn't even really sound like something I want to do, to be honest. But one thing I do know is that I want to be available and able to be very present for the first 10 years of my kid's life. My daughter's about to turn two. I have twins due in a couple of months. And I know this next period, this next 10 years is going to be the most close quality time that we're going to have as a family. And so it's almost a shame to be like, oh, I'm going to work really hard until my 40s, but then my kids are growing up and I don't want to be free right when they're leaving. I want to be free sooner. Right. And free to me just means able to be, be there. So I'm curious, like, do you have any just building and planning for a family, like play into the, the math there of that, like 36 time frame or, or how does that kind of factor into your vision if you don't mind my asking? Yeah, no, that's a great question. And that, and that when I wrote mine it, and I probably should be tweaking it now that I've made some changes yeah, professionally in my life, I wrote mine last summer and definitely some tweaking now, but that definitely was a main driver, a contributing factor to why I'm on this path. Right. I also want to say, I like, I like work optional too. I, I know the notion of retirement, right? And like running away from your W-2 job. I love my I love my team. I love the work that I do. I find it very engaging. My team is really awesome, a lot of young people. So I don't want it to come across as like, oh, I hate what I do and I can't wait to get out of here. And I just, like you said, the freedom to generate income maybe without your complete involvement is super fascinating to me. And my parents, I know I live in Atlanta, but my family kind of lives all over the Southeast. So I have to be very intentional about the time that I take and set aside to, to see them. And unfortunately, that's a little bit limited just by the nature of W-2 and things like that. My parents don't live in the same place as my two sisters do. So I need to be, I have to be very intentional about the way that I see them and that I interact with them because years can go by and you can only see them a couple of times a year. And then that's the same, the same kind of thing. But I do intend kind of parallel with that with my own family in the future. Yeah, I want to do the exact same thing that you talk about, right? Like I want to make sure that I can, the cliche, I want to be there for all the, the the baseball practices and the ballet recitals and things like that. Like those are the things that you'll never be able to get back, right? And I don't want to spend, I want to make sure that I have as much flexibility during those crucial years that I, I would never ever want to take for granted. So that's definitely kind of, I didn't necessarily pick 36 with that in mind, but that's definitely a major motivator as to to why 
why I have that timeline. And I, I think too, part of it is part of why I probably should revise the, the vision too, is that 36 is still a little bit of a ways away for me. And I like that you mentioned kind of like that two to three year timeline. I think that I probably should condense that a little bit. I think I, I do have the propensity to maybe get a little bit, I could get complacent with that timeline. I'm like, oh, it's still X amount of years away, right? But I think you have that two to three time, year timeline, the, the nature of the vivid vision itself is is definitely good enough time to kind of light a fire under you. At the same time, like give you a little bit of enough runway to kind of figure it out and, and pivot should you need. So that's I'm definitely going to take notes on that and, and potentially revise mine too. I love it. Yeah, I forget the exact quote, but there was something I read recently. I think it was Sahil Bloom, if who that is. He he put out it was it was based on something that he saw on Reddit, but it said the only people that will remember you working late ten years from now are your kids. Right. And the idea was that as hard as you want to grind and work and think that you're solving these big problems for yourself and getting ahead financially and all that, if it comes at the expense of the relationship with your kids, that's that is a far greater cost than whatever potential opportunity you might be pursuing. Now, obviously, there's extremes on both sides and there's a balance somewhere in between. But yeah, that, that was a pretty powerful sentiment. And then the vivid vision, since we're you and I have plugged no less than 10 people on this call already, <laughs> that's a book by Cameron Harold. It's a really, really great book. And the concept is that you create a visualization exactly three years from whatever day you're writing it. So again, I published mine on my 34th birthday and the projection was exactly how I'm going to be feeling, what I'm going to be doing, the state of my business, the state of my family, the state of my life on my 37th birthday. And that was, it's a great exercise. It's, it's very challenging because it's hard to say, but the whole idea is to place yourself in the present and start behaving like the person that you want to become today. And by doing so, you will manifest and, and create that, actualize that vision. So it's a really great book. It's a great idea. The mastermind that you and I are a part of, that's basically step one is to go through the, do the inner work and create the vision and put it out in the world which is a very vulnerable thing to do. Like you said, I'm not always comfortable talking about my real estate in front of my employers, but I've gotten more so because I've realized is by sharing, people are actually interested. And a lot of people that I work with actually invest in real estate. And I never would have known it if I didn't say it. And a lot of great conversations, even partnerships, friendships have been struck up as a result of sharing outwardly what I'm aiming for. And I remember reading your vision when I joined the group and, and, and it resonated closely with me too. So it's a great exercise. Well, Cam, is there anything else you want to tell, tell our audience? Anything we didn't hit on? Not really. I, I guess one thing you, you had mentioned speaking to some of your coworkers and other people, maybe not even in the workspace about what it is that you're doing. And something that I found that was really helpful for me, just a little maybe word of advice when I'm in the rooms, because when we're, when we're part of this mastermind and you go to a meetup and there's people who are one step ahead of you or 10 steps ahead of you. First of all, that's a very powerful thing, right? Being surrounding yourself and immersing yourself with people who are who have who have done what you want to do 10 years ago or, or who are doing what you want to do right now. I think that immersion is is a really, really powerful tool. And it's a relatively low effort thing to do. Like going to a free meetup in your in your city once a month is really a pretty low effort thing to do. But it's it's such a multiplicative return vehicle, I would say. Because not only does it, are you meeting these awesome people, it kind of shifts your mindset. You learn a lot of different things. But I, what I want to say about that is that like something that has been helpful for me is 
even if you're brand new and everyone has was brand new at some point, when I'm talking to a lot of folks who who have thousands of units or who have who are living very comfortably and have a massive amounts of passive income, I think some people who are new have a propensity to try to kind of try to be the most interesting person um, in the room, even though and I think a lot of people I've found that something that it's been helpful for me is seeking to be the most interested person because a lot of times like that comes back to you people like to talk tell their story and a lot of times like that energy and that connection you build people just by showing interest in what it is that they're doing like i said is is multiplicative in, in its returns so that's something that's been really helpful for me and it's a little bit counterintuitive but like people have so much to offer regardless of where they are in their in their journey so even even if it's a different perspective on on just a little thing that you think one way that perspective shift or at least addition to your mindset can be super super powerful so that's that's just what I've told folks in the past of like when you go to these places, don't be overwhelmed. All the best thing you can do is listen and, and ask questions. And that's that's been very, very helpful for folks and other folks who I've worked closely with who are now well on their way to financial independence. Hundred percent. Yeah. Don't underestimate the generosity of people who are a little bit further down the path. I know I've learned a lot from every person I've ever coached. And I learn a lot from all the conversations I have with new investors. And so I think sometimes people discount the fact that they're actually giving value too by engaging and talking to people who are ahead of them who who really enjoy giving back. And the best thing those new investors can do is a few years down the road when they have some experience, turn around and do the same thing, give it back and and we'll keep we'll keep the chain going. That's that's the way to be. <laughs> and a lot of times folks, especially folks who have W two jobs, like you mentioned earlier in the conversation. You, regardless of where you are in your journey, especially if you have a W-2 job, you have a lot of potential value you can bring to folks, even if you're not currently investing in anything. I've seen a lot of situations where there's an investor who's looking to expand their online presence and there's somebody who works in a web development that has never purchased a home, right? And there's like, there's that's that's a mutually beneficial relationship that could happen there, right? You can learn a lot from this person and you could also provide some value to them too. So I think applying some of those technical or professional skills in the investment space can be really valuable for folks who are much further down the line, more so than you would think. 100%. Yeah, take it from Cam. Cam's done a great job, not only being brave enough to insert himself into a networking group, but then he, it turned into so many different levels of opportunities. So that's, that's some great advice to end on. So Cam, where can people find you if they want to connect and, and get a loan from you or learn about house hacking? Where should they yeah, find you? Absolutely. So the best way to find me is on Instagram. And my handle is at uh, camhacksfi. That's one word, C-A-M-H-A-C-K-S-F-I. I will keep you guys posted on what lender and broker that I eventually end up getting sponsored by moving forward with. I would love to answer any questions that you guys have about financing or house hacking in general or any sort of real estate investing question you have. I can talk shop all day, every day. Shoot me a DM. I'm happy to, to talk to you guys about that in any capacity. If you guys are in the Atlanta area and you watch the show, the Atlanta Real Estate Investors Meetup, we meet once a month, usually the fourth Tuesday of every month, fourth Tuesday or Wednesday, depending on the month. Feel free to shoot me a DM on Instagram. I'll send you the information on when to meet up if you're in the area. Amazing. Once the twins are a little bit past the infant phase, maybe I'll have to make a trip up to Atlanta on a, the fourth Tuesday. Absolutely. Well, I got family in Houston too. So maybe I'll stay out there and I'll, I'll drop you a line. There we go, man. Well, this has been really fun. Thank you so much for joining. You are, I believe, the fourth guest. So you're one of the early adopters. 
Uh, but I'm, I'm really grateful for your time and, and wish you all the best. Yeah, thank you. I love what you do with the show, man. I think that there's not a lot of folks who talk about it from this angle where it's kind of hybridized, trying to pursue real estate or any sort of investment while also maintaining um, their W-2. So big fan of what it is that the writing you put out in the show. So thanks for having me, man. I appreciate it. Cool. Okay.